Reading from the Old Testament of Proverbs, chapter 15, verse 18. Those who are hot-tempered stir up strife, but those who are slow to anger calm contention. And reading from the New Testament, Colossians 3, verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Man, I can't tell you how blessed I am to worship with those people twice in one morning. Would y'all pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul wraps up his list of virtues that Christians are supposed to exhibit with patience. Um, it's the final one in the list, and, and to me at least, it, it, it's the only one that at first glance maybe doesn't quite fit with the other ones. Now, when you think of compassion and kindness, humility, uh, meekness or gentleness, uh, those are the sorts of things that in my mind automatically, yeah, that makes sense. That's a Christian sort of thing to have. Right? I, I would expect most of the Christians I know to exhibit those virtues more often than not. Um, and likewise, I would, kind of, I would kind of assume if you're not someone who was raised in, in the Christian tradition, you might not exhibit those as often. I just associate them with our faith, with the teachings of Scripture, uh, with, with a solid uh, relationship with your Savior. I just think those things sort of come naturally. But patience, patience to me, and I'm betting for a lot of you this is also true, patience is the sort of thing I think I see just as often outside of the church as within it. And it's almost like it's one of those things that you think that rather than being born of a deep, deep discipleship, it's almost born of just like maturity and wisdom. It's one of those things you can just get out anywhere. So patience almost, in my mind, doesn't quite fit here, but clearly Paul thinks it's important. Um, my wife's not here in this service, so I can say that I'm a very patient man. <laughs> She's not going to watch online either, so I can keep saying it. <laughs> I am wildly impatient, in fact. But, you know, what, what I notice a lot is that people tend to think that uh, people my age or younger, right, the millennials and below, uh, are like the most impatient generations to have ever been born, right? Because we're, we're used to instant gratification, right? I didn't technically grow up with a phone or with internet in my house. We didn't have internet in my home until I was a teenager. But, but still, I got used to it pretty quickly, right? So I, I'm used to being able to 
buy something online and have it shipped to my home in two days or less for free. Uh, I'm used to like Netflix streaming. If I want to watch a movie, I don't have to go rent it or wait till it comes out in theaters. I can just turn on the TV and it's right there. Um, and so there's, there is some truth to that fact that people in my age and younger uh, have gotten kind of used to instant gratification in a lot of ways. But I refuse to believe that we are any more impatient than people older than us. Because let me tell you, if you go online and you look at the reviews of, of restaurants in town, not the professional reviews, but like the amateur ones on Yelp uh, from people who think they're good restaurant critics but aren't, right? If you look at the reviews and you find every one of them that, that complains about how slow the service was or how long the food took to get, if you look at reviews of any online store and find the ones that complain about how long the shipping time is, I'd, I'd bet my life savings the person who wrote that review was over 50. <laughs> I, my friends, everyone is equally impatient. Now, now, different generations are perhaps impatient in different ways, right? It expresses itself differently because we just, whatever, for whatever reason, we have different priorities in some ways, right? If I'm at a restaurant and the food takes forever, I'm willing to assume that means they're making it fresh. I'm excited about that. But if my Netflix movie takes more than 30 seconds to load, someone's going down. <laughs> different ways of being impatient. But everyone is impatient. Everyone expresses this somehow. And, and really, these are all relatively trivial things. But when it comes to the important stuff, the big life issues, church issues, we are all impatient in exactly the same ways. If you, for instance, were unemployed and you were looking for a job, you would be impatient to find a job. Especially now because, like it or not, it, it takes a while to find work for most people usually longer than you'd like, and you grow impatient. And why are you impatient to get a job? Why? You can throw out lots of reasons, but at the end of the day, the reason you're impatient to find a job when you're unemployed is you're afraid. You're afraid God won't provide for you. You're afraid that perhaps God has led you down the wrong path. Perhaps you're afraid that God's not leading you at all. But your impatience is rooted in fear. And if you give into it, what will happen is you might take the first job that comes along only to find out you're miserable. And sure, you might have money in the bank account, but you are unhappy. When maybe if you'd waited a bit longer than you were comfortable with, God would have led you somewhere different and it would all be better now. Your impatience was rooted in fear. Maybe it was even just, just fear of, of God showing you just how many of your needs are actually wants. Because see, the Bible says God will provide for us. He will take care of us. He'll give us everything we need, but not necessarily everything we want. And I don't know about you, but I, I'm a little terrified by the thought that God might one day decide to show me just how many of the things I think I need are not actually necessary. Right? There's fear there. And ultimately, we are afraid of things that are beyond our control. Think about all the situations in life that make you impatient. 
whether they're big, important things or just relatively trivial stuff. Think about all of them. Every single one of them is a situation where you are put somewhere where the results of what's going on are beyond your control. If you're at a restaurant and you're waiting too long for food, you have no control over when that plate comes to your table, do you? If you're sitting in traffic and you can't wait to get home but the line will not move, you've got no control over it. We don't like to find ourselves doing things or having to do things that are not within our entire ability to control. We don't like it. We're terrified of it. And I hate to break it to you, but if, if that's what you're experiencing, God is going to break you. He will break you. Because you see, you cannot, cannot, cannot follow Jesus if you are not willing to turn over control to him. Not because he's some kind of authoritarian dictator who just feels the need to control you every step, but because, like it or not, he is a lot smarter than you. I know this from experience. He's smarter than me, right? And, and if God is in control, it's going to end up better for you than it would otherwise. But God has a nasty habit of taking control of things and then not telling you what he's doing, right? I don't like it. So what he does is he takes control and then asks you to just trust that whatever he does, it's going to be okay. He asks you to trust that his timing is better than your timing. Ask you to, to trust that just because you can't see where the path you're on is leading doesn't mean it's going to take you to a bad place. And I don't have to explain to you just how hard and nerve-wracking that can be. Within the church, we are afraid that God will let our church die. That's our fear. God will let the church die. And it's not unfounded because if we're honest with ourselves, God does, in fact, at times, allow a church to die. Now, I don't want to scare you too much, so I'll tell you, I'm not talking about our church Right? I don't think that's happening here. That's not the case. But there are times when, when the best thing for everyone is, is that God lets the church die. And I've, I can, I've seen it before. The church dies. The building lies empty for a year. Someone comes in, buys it, renovates it, plants a new church, and it flourishes. It wasn't that a church didn't need to be in that spot. It was that it was time for that church to go and something new to come. And people were faithful and listened to what God was telling them and let it happen. But, but more often than not, God will renew a church. But he's going to do it in his own time. And that makes us afraid. We're afraid that it won't happen quickly enough. We're afraid we'll run out of money. We're afraid too many people will leave in the meantime. Or we're afraid that they'll all go to the Baptists, right? And nothing's worse than that. <laughs> so we're afraid. And, and here's what happens. Churches, in their fear of that, load up their calendar with all kinds of programs and ministries and things to do. And so you look at their church calendar, and it is jam-packed. And there's always something going on in the building. I have worshipped at and worked at churches where there was something happening in every single room of their building at least once or twice a week. The calendar was always full. 
Every weekday, the parking lot was full. People were there all day long. People were there well into the evening. There was always something going on. If you wanted to volunteer, there was always some place to put you. There was always some way you could serve. So it was exciting. You, you could ask the pastor, how can I help? And they'd have a long list of stuff for you to do. They'd have all these other groups that were not part of the church that would rent out their space, and they'd make money off that to keep their bills paid. And it was wonderful, and it was busy, and it looked great. And you go to worship with them on Sunday morning, and there's 30 people in the sanctuary. And the church would still be dying. Because rather than trust in God and wait for him to show them what to do, rather than waiting for God to, to give them the right moment to act, they jumped the gun. Instead of following the path, they, they veered off and tried to forge their own way forward. Right? You've heard the phrase, Jesus is coming, everyone look busy. Right? That's what they're doing. They're just looking busy because it makes them feel good, because it makes them feel like they're doing something. It makes them feel as though their church is vibrant and healthy because they're constantly busy, when in reality, it's just a hollow shell. And the one thing they all have in common is all these programs, all these ministries they're doing, when, when you actually look at what they're doing, none of it is discipleship. They might be serving their community in a thousand different ways, but they're not discipling their people, and they're not discipling the people outside their walls. And even, I would bet, and I've, I've seen it, because I've been at these churches, right? If you go into their Bible studies, you're not going to learn anything. You're not going to be discipled. You won't be taught how to take what's in here and apply it to your daily life. You might, you might get a ton of information, you might be overwhelmed with information about what's in here and how to study it and what it says in Hebrew. But you won't know how it applies to your everyday life. I can tell you, even, even in seminary, we had that experience. I can tell you that the Battle of Carchemish was fought in 605 BC, and I can tell you why that was important from a historical perspective, but I can't tell you why it matters for your discipleship. I got long lists of names and dates memorized, but none of it matters to my daily walk with Christ. But I've got a ton of information about this book. I could win every Bible trivia game you throw at me. So don't challenge me. We're afraid. We're afraid to wait for God's timing. And in our impatience, we veer off the path he's laid before us. And as a result, the thing we feared most happens to our church anyway. The church dies. It may die a little slower, but it still happens because they just stopped trying to see what God was doing with them. I can tell you not only are we supposed to be patient, God is patient with us. You know, I, I first got my call to ministry in the eighth grade, and then I spent the next six years denying it ever happened. Right? And, and the Lord was patient with me because he knew if he tried to force it on me earlier, it wouldn't work. And when the time was right, God began to push me. But he was patient. 
my parents were patient with me as well because I, mean, I was a teenager growing up in Austin. And when you're a teenager growing up in Austin, lots of weird thoughts into your head and come out of your mouth, right? <laughs> it's a weird place, man. This is, I'm telling you, the Austin is weird slogan. It's not an exaggeration. It's an understatement. <laughs> they were patient with me. And when I said just bizarre, stupid things, right, rather than trying to crush me and tell me I was wrong and, and force me to see things the way they saw them, they, they waited. Because they knew that eventually the Lord would lead me where I needed to go. And they were patient. And if they hadn't been, I'm not quite sure I would have ended up where I did. And Lord knows my wife is patient with me every day. All of us have had similar experiences. We, we've had people in our lives, whether they're parents or spouses or sometimes even our own children, right, who are, who are patient with us. And it always works out better for us than if they had just tried to do things their own way. The Bible is full of examples of God being patient with his people. Time after time after time, right? They spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt as God gives the pharaohs of Egypt every possible opportunity to do the right thing before he intervenes. And what you'll notice as God exhibits patience in Scripture and in our own lives is he doesn't just show patience. He also is attempting to teach us to be patient in that time as well teaching us to trust that he's got a reason for doing things the way he's doing them. And for as long as it takes, there's a reason why God is waiting. I like to think that as the Israelites watched what God did to the Egyptians to win their freedom, they began to finally understand why he had waited so long. Because you have to imagine that for most of those 400 years, they were not exactly thrilled with God's patience. And maybe, just maybe, as they watched the plagues roll across the land, they finally understood, ah, this is why. Because he wanted to avoid this. He's patient with them all throughout the Old Testament. He's patient with them as they come into the promised land and as they almost immediately turn against him. He's patient with them when they reject his authority and demand a king. He's patient with them when their kings turn out to be not so great. He's patient with them when they rebel continuously against his word. But he teaches them patience as well. Their exile to Babylon lasts for 70 years. When they come back, it's several centuries before the Messiah that he promised to them finally comes. And after he's born, it's 30 more years before he starts his ministry. And then after he dies, it's been over 2,000 years, and we are still waiting for him to come back. God is a patient God. But patience is not timidity, which is what we confuse it with. We confuse patience with, with paralyzing inaction. Not only waiting to do something, but also not doing things when the opportunity is right. That's not what patience is. Patience is waiting till the time is right and then acting decisively. And you see God do it time and time again in the Bible. And I'm willing to bet, if you reflect on your own life, you will see God doing that in your life time and time and time and time again. God waits. 
and waits and waits. And when the time is right, he moves. I've said multiple times that what this church is looking for, what we want, is a revival. The, the vision that's been put before you is 500 people in worship by 2024. Three years. Nobody panic. It's okay. You know, the thing about church growth is it's not, it's not a straight line. Churches, when they grow, it starts slow. And it stays slow. And it stays slow some more. And then it explodes. Because, you see, God does not begin to flood a church with new believers until the people who are already here are ready for it. In other words, he makes you wait. He makes you be patient. Every church wants to grow. Not every church is willing to be patient enough to let it happen. Because revival, revival doesn't begin with uh, signs and wonders and miracles out there. Revival doesn't begin with a big old tent on the lawn and a preacher you know, giving a rousing come-to-Jesus kind of thing. That's not where it starts. Revival begins in the hearts of the people who are already in the church. God is not going to lead new believers to a church until the people who are there are ready to do what it takes to lead those people to Christ. Because you see, the tricky part is you have to be patient with them too. If you've ever spent much time talking to people who, who did not grow up in a church, who don't have any kind of religious belief or, or, or just were not raised with that worldview, you would be shocked at how differently they see the world. And you would be shocked at how they see Christians, right? I mean, people are predisposed and conditioned to see Christians as, as hypocrites and judgmental people. And we are, by the way, right? Because everyone's a hypocrite, right? We preach one thing and we do another. And, and to you and I, we understand that, that that happens because we're not perfect and we make mistakes and there is grace and forgiveness in there. But we understand that because we've been taught that our whole lives, most of us. We've been saturated with that idea that God has grace and forgives and, and that it's okay to make a mistake as long as you try to not keep making it, right? We, we, we've been saturated with that, but, but people who are not part of the faith haven't been. And if we're not patient with them, we don't come off as, as loving and kind. We come off as hypocrites and judgmental people. And we drive them away. Because we, we just are in a rush to get them to see things our way. We're in a rush to convince them of how, how right and true this is. And we push it too far. God's going to make us be patient with them because he's been patient with them. There are people right now all over this city who God is working on slowly, patiently. And when the time is right, he's going to call them. they will find a church home wherever the church is ready. God will make us wait. 
I know, I know that there is this, this um, air of expectation in this church. Right? I mean, I felt it from day one. It was like, Pastor Force is here. All our problems are solved. Woo! Um, I get that reaction a lot. I mean, I'm joking, but only half. Because that, that really is how some people have reacted. That's just how it is, right? People are excited. They're ready to go, right? And then, then the young pastor comes along, and it's like, great, he can do everything we need him to do. And look, the reality is, um, sometimes God's going to make us slow down. It doesn't, doesn't mean I'm not going to do anything. It doesn't mean that my, my whole leadership philosophy for the church is just to sit back and wait and see what happens. No, I'll do things. But, but the reality is, the first things that are going to happen, the, the place where growth will begin is with you all. The people who are already here. Revival begins here. Because no matter how deep your faith is, no matter how much you love coming to worship, and no matter how how much you adore my wonderful sermons, that was a joke, yes. (laughs) Everyone gets to a point in their faith where things just feel like they've dried up. It begins to feel like your faith is just sort of going through the motions and showing up on Sunday. John Wesley would have called it the form of religion without the power. And so he has to revive us first before we can be the seed of a greater movement. And that will take time. The word we use is sanctification, being made holy, being made more and more like Christ. But it's a long, slow process that never really stops. Day after day after day, God is working on us to become more and more like Jesus. As we wait to see what God is going to do, God is molding us and shaping us to be the people we need to be, to be the church that we need to be. And it may take longer than we're really comfortable with, and there may, there may come a few times when we sit back and wonder, is he really leading us down this path? Is this really where we need to go? Is this taking too long? Are we going to be okay? But as long as we are willing to trust that he is leading us in the right direction. We can be absolutely certain that whatever he is making us wait for will be worth waiting for. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.